Shalom and welcome everybody to the latest episode of Reading Rainbow, or I meant, you know, <laughs> unexpected cosmology, but this is our summer series, Extra Biblical Literature, or as I like to call it, Scripture. Uh, I do want to announce, I was talking to Adam Fink today, and he was supposed to announce the baptisms last week for whatever reason it slipped. He expects to be announcing it tomorrow, Friday, uh, that would be July 23rd. And these are going to be the na nationwide baptisms. And we're going to be here at Cosmology. We will be hosting the baptisms at four different locations. We've got pretty much, I think, the East Coast covered for Adam. We have Dave up in the whereabouts of New Hampshire. We have Polly in – Polly, we can say where you're baptizing, right? Of course we can because it's in the, the, uh, the web page. He will be baptizing in Savannah. And Hank will be in Seattle, Washington, way over there on the West Coast. And then I will be with a few different people in this room tonight. Uh, Rob, Michael, uh, Cher will be there. And I'm trying to think if anyone else here tonight will be there. But we will be in Florida. Specifically, we will be in the at a place called SunWest Park in Hudson, Florida, which is about an hour north of Tampa and an hour to maybe two hours west of Orlando. I'm not quite sure on that, but it's kind of uh, central West Florida. And this will be on August 14th, a Sabbath, Saturday, August 14th. And those details will be coming. So if anyone is listening to this recording as we put it out on YouTube land and other places, um, just be prepared for that. You guys can contact us. You can go to the Unexpected Cosmology. We have a you can just type in, uh, you know, baptisms or not uh, nationwide baptisms or just baptisms in general will come up and you can get all that information. And I'll be updating where we'll be and where they'll be in Seattle and, and uh, New Hampshire and Savannah and all those locations. So we still have about three to four weeks to go and it's coming quickly. Oh, yeah. So on the unexpected cosmology, just. For anyone, you know, kind of new listening in, I get all the time people come and tell me, oh, I really like your YouTube channel. And it, and what's really interesting is that the YouTube channel is really small in comparison to YouTube channel. But we are we are at the Unexpected Cosmology, a writing based website, a journalistic website. And um, every single every single Friday. We have new articles coming out. Uh, we, we deal with you know hoaxes and and biblical literature, Torah-based stuff, and any number of things. I have guest writers come in all the time. If you are interested in in writing um, articles, please get in touch with me. All right. So we are in our summer series of reading extra biblical literature, and last week we read from the Revelation of Moshe, which I hope everybody enjoyed. I really enjoyed it. It was a phenomenal read and it brought me a lot of joy. This week we will be reading from the Testament of Job. So I did drop a PDF into the uh, general voice chat. For those of you who may be listening to this video outside of our live Thursday night discussion, you can go to the Unexpected Cosmology. It will be published tomorrow morning, Friday, 7 uh, July 23rd, uh, on the website. You can get the whole script for the Testament of Job, or you can just do a Google search and find it easily enough in a like a PDF form. Uh, if you want to read along with us tonight, that would be really helpful. All right, so the Testament of Job, I was kind of looking into this, and 
if we're going to go the scholarly route, the scholars will say that it was probably written sometime in the first century BC to the first century AD. Most people tend to lean on a pre-Christian uh, first century BC, though some people think that, you know, Christians got their hands on and added little things. Now, this is just the official narrative, guys. Now, the question I have for everybody, and this is something to consider for the next few weeks as we look at these books, because I'm not telling you with certainty that these are scripture. I believe I have some ideas of what scripture is that probably most people don't have. Uh, I don't romanticize it quite like um, most of, you know, Western evangelical Christianity or the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church does. But the question is, is how do you determine what scripture actually is? I mean, you, everybody assumes you get the 66 book canon. Everyone assumes that everything in there is scripture. How do you know? How do you judge? You can't just go off of a church council, right, from like the 300s. Um, and then when we look at all these extra biblical books and, and you're reading them, how are you evaluating what scripture actually is or isn't? Now, if I were to give you an answer like three or four years ago, it would have been very different. I would have that before I came to the realization that Torah is eternal and for all people, anyone who is in a uh, in the congregation or a covenant with the Most High, I would have said something like, I would judge on what is, it would have been a very uh, kind of a loose and, and vague, not so much vague, it'd be a little bit of a loose interpretation um, but I would say that anything that shows Hellenistic, a uh, Greek Hellenization within it needs to be tossed out, needs to be tossed to the curve. Anything with that is influenced by Plato needs to be tossed out. Um, and it's interesting because some of these books that we're reading, like if uh, last week when we read uh, the Revelation of Moshe, I would have said that has some Greek um, Hellenization to it. This week with the Testament of Job, there is what you might define as some Greek Hellenization with it. Um, the thing that really kind of flipped me on my head and, and really caused me to gasp and look at this all anew is, and this is why, guys, we're like going through the Aramaic Targum, and I've opened up to some of this stuff I never would have a few years ago, is when I finally realized, oh my goodness, all of Scripture was written uh, from Ezra forward, uh, from after the second... After they came back from Babylon, after the, the captivity in Babylon, after they came back from that, Torah was gone. It was, it was gutted out and gone. And we see that Ezra is the one that he and his group of scholars, of monks, of, uh, you know, scri I guess scribes really is the word, were sitting down and really supernaturally writing all this stuff down. And it's interesting that when you when when scholars, it's, it's ironic, really, that when scholars and everything, they're looking at Enoch and Jubilees and all these books are like, oh, yeah, they were written, you know, in the second, third century BC or whatever. It's like, yeah, that's that's exactly where it should be. All scripture is really only that old. That's when the Aramaic Targum starts to originate. And so we're seeing all these things coming out of of that time period. And so that's really it's it's realizing that, you know, we don't have anything, any documents that are really older. I mean, you see those stories in uh, was it first second Kings where they go into the temple and some king discovers the Torah in there and like it's been gone for two or three generations, right? Like this is how grim and dire it was getting. But anyways, realizing that and seeing how we see scripture really coming out and being formed there at that time, just as, as the narrative in Ezra says it should be, I, I've come to a new conclusion of how I judge what is scripture and what is not. And that is, what is its view on Torah? 
Like we know that the Torah is the, 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 the way, the truth, and the life. It is the light. And of course, we know Yahusha is Torah made flesh, and you know, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and so on and so forth. When you read these extra biblical books, how what is their view on Torah? Because we know that most of the world hates Torah. They hate his instructions in righteousness. That is an easy way to determine what is a real book and a fake book. If someone is not interested in talking about it and they start talking about truth and all these concepts, but they never talk about Yahuwah's instructions in righteousness, that could be one of the ways you're like, uh, yeah, okay, I, I'm not I'm not really following this as much. That would be like when we get into like the Gnostic texts and things like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to like, you show me a Gnostic text, I'll read it. But if, if they're talking about like light and truth and all these kind of things, but they're not really interested in talking about what that light and truth is in context to Torah, the, the instructions and righteousness of our father, then I'm like, yeah, I think that they have a, a different idea of what truth is. Hopefully everyone's tracking with me. Maybe not everyone's going to agree, but that's, that's my standard as I look at this kind of stuff. All right. So. Let's go ahead and pull this up. Now, this was, uh, you'll see on the title page there, the Testament of Job. This was translated by M.R. James in 1897. This is back in the day when everybody, for whatever strange reason, I did read the explanation on this before, but they, they all went by their initials for the first names. Uh, so this is, um, I, I'm not crazy about this translation. It's kind of all we have to work with. There's, there's a, it's a very sloppy translation. And I really feel that if somebody could go back and get these these texts and give us like the, the Dr. Stephen Pigeon treatment, that would be amazing. Because I think that I, I am skeptical about some of these translations, how they how they turn out and how uh, this uh, so-called M.R. James in 1897 translate this. You'll see it for yourself. Some of it's a little sloppy, um, but this is what we have to work with. So let's get right to it. The Testament of Job. Chapter one, on the day he became sick and he knew that he would have to leave his bodily abode. So right there, boom, we know that this is a couple hundred years. This is a couple hundred years after the incident of the the plague that we'll see here lasted for seven, seven years. So this is at the very end of his life. It's this is the same kind of literature we see with like the 12 patriarchs where they're all on their deathbed and they're telling their life story. So. And we'll find out that actually, uh, if you you'll see in here that you know the the book of Job is a work of art, like it's pure poetry. It's a it's a even on a non biblical uh, perspective, it, it's it's a it's a masterpiece of literature. This not so much. It's 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 clearly written by somebody else. Whoever wrote the book of Job, whether it was Moshe or Job himself, was a, an amazing writer. Uh, this one is scaled back a little bit, but he's dictating this story to somebody else who's writing down. We'll find out who that is. So let's try that again. On the day he became sick and he knew that he would have to leave his bodily abode, he called his seven sons and his three daughters together and spake to them as follows. Form a circle around me, children, and hear, and I shall relate to you what Yahuwah did for me and all that happened to me. For I am Job, your father. Know ye then, my children, that you are the generation of a chosen one and take heed of your noble birth. For I am the sons of Esau. So there, right there, there's a clue as to who this guy is. He's one of Esau's sons. And um, I did a whole um, I did a whole kind of research paper on Job. And I think I found out that he was actually the grandson of Esau. 
My brother is Nahor, and your mother is Dinah. Now, in case you're wondering if that sounds familiar to you, that is the same Dinah as the sister to the 12 patriarchs. And some of you may be asking, but how can that be so? Well, I sat down and I, 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 I am showing Rob my research on this. I did a whole paper on this, which I'm really excited to premiere. It will be a part of my Torah portion series, so it will not come out the next December. But I did a whole genealogical search and I did the math because in the, in the Aramaic Targum, we see that Job is still alive in Egypt when the plagues are coming down uh, with Moshe and Aaron. He's there to see it go down. And he's very old at this time. And you're like, well, but how can that be? How can he, you know, how can he have married Dinah and still, and keep in mind, this is his second wife, not his first wife. So his second wife is Dinah. Um, And I actually did the math on this showing when Dinah was born, when they married, when they went into uh, Egypt, when the plagues would have happened and shown that he could have still married Dinah for his second wife. Um, and lived exactly to when the uh, Yah allowed him to see his mighty hand at work in Exodus. Um, so it, it works out perfectly. So that's really cool to think that, you know, Dinah is the one who was raped and nobody would marry her after that because she was defiled. And she, um, Job got to live a whole second life. He lived one life and he lived a whole nother life. And Dinah did as well. She would have outlived her brothers and her brothers only lived to be like 120, 130 years old. It, it looks like Dinah lived a lot longer. So that's really exciting to see. By her have I become your father. So we see right here that his children and his daughters are all through Dinah. For my wife died with my other 10 children in bitter death. Hear now, children, and I will reveal unto you what happened to me. I was a very rich man living in the east in the land of uh, Ossetis, which is us. And before Yahuwah had named me Job, I was called Jobab. And let me again stop there. Sorry for keep uh, going into this. We This explains why he was in Egypt. Because if you read the book of Jasher, Job is actually giving counsel to Pharaoh. And he's like, well, why is he in Egypt? Why is he not in the land of Uz anymore? Well, he left the land of Uz uh, because he married Dinah. And Dinah wanted to be with her people, and it would make sense because he is converted. We will see his conversion story in this. He was once a goyim, uh, you could say, even though he was a son of Esau, uh, and he became converted. He crossed over, became a Hebrew, and he would have wanted to marry a Hebrew woman. Well, who was the perfect woman? Was Dinah, right? So, all right. All right, so he's in the line of us. And before Yahuwah had named me Job, I was called Jobab. So, and that, that again, so Yahuwah personally names him Job, just like Abram to Abraham. So we know that he is now, he is a Hebrew. He has crossed over. He's part of the congregation. The beginning of my trial was thus. Near my house, there was the idol of one worshiped by the people. And I saw constantly burnt offerings brought to him as an Elohim. Then I pondered and said to myself, is this he who made heaven and earth, the sea and us and all, uh, us all? How will I know the truth? And see, you can see some of this, this translation is a little messy. We're just going to have to work with this. And in that night, as I lay asleep, a voice came and called, Jobab, Jobab, rise up. And I will tell thee who is the one whom thou wishest to know. This, however, to whom the people bring burnt offerings and libations. 
is not Elohim, but this is the power and work of the seducer, Satan, by which he beguiles the people. And when I heard this, I fell upon the earth and I prostrated myself, saying, O my Adonai, who speaketh for the salvation of my soul, I pray thee, if this is the idol of Satan, I pray thee, let me go hence and destroy it and purify this spot. For this is none that can, for there is none that can forbid me doing this, as I am the king of this land, so that those that live in it will no longer be led astray. So we see here that he is the king of us, uh, and the um, the location of this places it, it's placed right in Edom. Like us uh, is probably right there at the base of the um, of the Dead Sea area, and it places them right there with uh, his grandfather Esau. <clears throat> and the voice that spoke out of the flame answered to me that thou canst purify the spot. But behold, I announce to thee what Yahuwah ordered me to tell thee, for I am the archangel of the Elohim. And I said, whatever shall be told to his servant, I shall hear. And the archangel said to me, thus speaketh Yahuwah, if thou undertakest to destroy and takest away the image of Satan, he will set himself with wrath to wage war against thee. And he will display against thee all his malice. He will bring upon thee many severe plagues and take from thee all that thou hast. He will take away thine children and will inflict many evils upon thee. Then thou must wrestle like an athlete and resist pain. Sure of thy reward, overcome trials and afflictions. Um, so we're going to see a comparison here to Abraham coming out of the land of uh, uh, the, out of the Chaldeans over there, the land of uh, Ur. And we, in the book of Joshua, we see the same thing. And in the writings of Abraham, we see Abr Abram thrown into the fiery furnace. And we see um, basically, uh, specifically in the writings of Abraham, Satan challenging Abram because he, you know, he goes against his kingdom. And so we're going to see something very similar here um, between the two. Oh, and by the way, anyone who wants to jump in and make any comments along the way, please do so. Um, if you guys, especially you, Rob, you're the you're the expert on this book, so this is um, you're you've been really passionate about this. But when thou endurest, I shall make my, thy name renowned throughout all generations of the earth until to the end of the world, and I shall restore thee to all that thou has had, and the double part of what thou shalt lose will be given to thee in order that thou mayst know that Elohim does not consider the person but giveth to each who deserveth the good. And also to thee shall it be given, and thou shalt put a, on a crown of amaranth. Did I pronounce that right? And at the resurrection, thou shalt awaken for eternal life. Then shalt thou know that Yahuwah is just and true and mighty. So right here, um, th this angel is giving Job a doctrinal statement that he actually repeats in the book of Job. Uh, he actually talks about how uh, he knows that his uh, one of my favorite books in the book of Job is he talks about how he knows his redeemer lives in heaven, um, but he will not see him until he is in a new flesh when the Messiah comes down on the earth. It's a really, really great passage. I know. Yes. Uh, verse 25, uh, my translation here says crown of tassel flowers. Okay. And it, what's what's interesting is twenty six is 
at the resurrection you will awaken for eternal life and tying it tying that in with a crown of of tassel flowers is just interesting has has the translation been pretty close yeah so far uh pretty much right on uh that was the only one i found as as you're reading along that was different than in mine okay um i did want i did want to point out for anyone that's listening that verse 19 is key as to why uh you know the other book of job in this in the canon is is gives you a definition or the reason why Hasatan comes after job seeks to uh destroy him and seeks that and yah yah knowing uh lets him do so because he's tearing down the images uh of 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 satan that are people are worshiping good um I had someone that got kicked out of the server, both of Yah, they're trying to figure out how to get back in. If somebody can maybe help her, uh, it says she's asking for an invite. Yeah, Mike sent sent an invite. And I I do drop stuff in the chat too. So people out there listening, if you want more information, join the group. All right. Um, I'm sorry, I lost. Where are we? We are on verse... um, 27. 27. All right, here we go. Whereupon, my children, I replied, I shall, from love of Elohim, endure until death all that will come upon me, and I shall not shrink back. Then the angel put his seal upon me and left me. So that's interesting. He he gets a seal put upon him here, and um, and that's apparently something that the, the agreement here is that um, that Satan can't, you know, he can't basically go against what the seal is. So that's that's a really exciting thought that uh, that Yah could put any kind of you know seal of Yah on us that you know gives us that kind of protection. Chapter two. After this, I rose up in the night and took fifty slaves and went to the temple of the idol and destroyed it to the ground. And so I went back to my house and gave orders that the door should be firmly locked, saying to my doorkeepers, "I love this scene. <laughs> if somebody shall ask for me, bring no report to me, but tell him." He investigates urgent affairs. He is inside. Then Satan, this gives me chills, this scene. Then Satan disguised himself as a beggar and knocked heavily at the door, saying to the doorkeeper, report to Job and say that I desire to meet him. And the doorkeeper came in and told me that, but heard from me that I was studying. The evil one, having failed in this, went away and took upon his shoulder an old torn basket and went in and spoke to the doorkeeper, saying, tell Job. Give me bread from thine hand that I may eat. And when I heard this, I gave her burnt bread to give it to him. And I made known to him, except not to eat of, oh, expect not to eat of my bread, for it is forbidden to thee. But the doorkeeper, being ashamed to hand him the burnt and ashy bread, as she did not know that it was Satan, took of her own fine bread and gave it to him. But he took it and, knowing what occurred, said to the maiden, Go hence, bad servant, and bring me the bread that was given thee to hand to me. And the servant cried and spoke in grief, Thou speakest the truth, saying that I am a bad servant, because I have not done as I was instructed by my master. And he turned back and brought him the burnt bread and said to him, Thus thus says my Adonai, Thou shalt not eat of my bread any more. For it is forbidden to thee, 
And this he gave me, saying, This I give, in order that the charge may not be brought against me that I did not give to the enemy who asked. And when Satan heard this, he sent back the servant to me, saying, As thou seest this bread all burnt, so shall I soon burn thy body to make it like this. And I replied, Do what thou desirest to do, and accomplish whatever thou plottest, for I am ready to endure whatever thou bringest upon me. And when the devil heard this, he left me, and and walking up to under the highest heaven, he took from Yahuwah the oath that he might have power over all my possessions. And so, right, okay, well, let me just finish this sentence. And after having taken the power, he went and instantly took away all my wealth. So we see a lot of similarities here between Job and Abraham. And if you recall, like in the in, um, in Jasher, uh, Satan would take on the form of a river. He would take on the form of an old man. And he's always trying to, you know, tempt people. It makes you wonder. Um, I mean, it really makes you – it makes me want to just be on my guard all the time when I just meet strangers. Because you never know who you're truly talking to. Um, and – um, anyways, we see here that this is the scene that leads up to Job chapter one. We never know in the the book of Job why Satan has it out for Job, and he goes up to heaven and complains about you know Yahuwah's servant Job. But here we can see that you know he went and he destroyed his temple that was Satan enjoyed the worship uh, from there. Maybe it was his actual throne. I don't know. Um, but uh, that yeah ticked him off, and he's going after Job now. Hey, Noel. Yes. I know that you mentioned that you wanted to start with a shofar and a prayer. Was that not going to be part of the thing anymore? I don't know. <laughs> I actually did. Yeah, just jump right into it. I totally forgot, didn't I? Um, you well, know it's, what, it's Paulie? A it's a good, yeah, chapter three is a great place to, uh, you know. Well, yeah, because Job is about to go into distress. So let's. So that let's, was all prologue, and now we're going to start the story. So it's a perfect time. So let's hear it. Let's do the shofar blast. All right, I'll pray really quickly, and then let's um, delve into chapter 3. Our our dearest Father in heaven, Most High Elohim Yahuwah, uh, thank you for these fine people that you have uh, brought into this group tonight. Um, Thank you for giving us your your word. Um, We have the Bible before us, but we have all these other books that— um, we know that you have you have set some aside and um, and uh, for us to seek out, and we pray that you would um, uh, just give us guidance in in what we seek and what we read, and um, and I pray you would teach us tonight in your word. Amen. All right. So, and that's one of the things. One of the things, guys. I'll just say this really quickly before we get into chapter three. Is one of the things I love about all these extra biblical books is that, and I closed on this note last week, is that you start reading this stuff and you start seeing these cross references that you never expected before, and pretty soon um, the Bible just starts teaching itself. You know, you don't you don't need to go get these three point sermons from people in in uh, churches anymore. It's just like you just. You know, you read the Bible and it just it all starts clicking. Uh, the more you read, the more books you read and you just start going through this stuff. And it, it just all starts making this complete picture. All right. Chapter three. 
For I had 130,000 sheep, and of these I separated 7,000 for the clothing of orphans and widows, and of needy and sick ones. I had a herd of 800 dogs who watched my sheep. That's a lot of dogs to watch the sheep. And besides these, 200 to watch my house. And I had nine mills working for the whole city and ships to carry goods. And I seat them into every city and into the villages to the feeble and sick and to those that were unfortunate. And I had 340,000 nomadic asses. And of these, I set aside 500. And the offspring of these I ordered to be sold and the proceeds to be given to the poor and the needy. For, for from all the lands, the poor came to meet me. For the four doors of my house were opened, each being in charge of a watchman who had to see whether there were any people coming asking alms and whether they would see me sitting at one of the doors so that they could leave through the other and take whatever they needed. I also had 30 immovable tables set at all hours for the strangers alone. And I also had 12 tables spread for the widows. And if anyone came asking for alms, he found food on my table to take all he needed. And I turned nobody away to leave my door with an empty stomach. This is one of the reasons I think that uh, Yahuwah chose Job and revealed himself to Job. First of all, Job was seeking for the creator, the Most High. And we know that Esau really wasn't that interested in the Most High. Um, his brother Jacob went to uh, school with Shem, but you know Esau gave up his inheritance. Um, but but we see here that ultimately Job is practicing Torah. He's taking care of the, he's loving people. He's taking care of the poor, the needy, the widows. I mean, this is exactly what Yahusha told us to do. It's it's following it to a T. And so. We could totally see why Yahuwah would chose, choose to reveal himself to someone like Job who was seeking him to begin with and had had a true heart uh, for the creator. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's doing exactly like you said, what, what Abraham's done. And also, it's very similar actions that are mentioned in the Order of the Ancients, too. Yes, I was going to mention, yeah, the Mishaldadak priesthood, yeah. And you're referring to the Book of Elias, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I'm outlining that book too, but yeah. Verse 9. I also had 3,500 yokes of oxen, and I selected of these 500 and had them tend to the plowing. And with these, I had done all the work in each field by those who would take it in charge, and the income of the crops I laid aside for the poor on their table. Uh, I also had 50 bakeries from which I sent the bread to the table for the poor. So he had. 50 bakeries apparently i don't it looks like it looks like if i'm reading that right he had these bakeries just to bake bread for the poor so that's that's pretty incredible and i had slaves selected for their service there were also some strangers who saw my goodwill they wished to serve as waiters themselves others being in distress and unable to obtain a living came with the request saying we pray thee since we also can fill this office of waiters deacons and we and have no possession have pity upon us and advance money to us in order that we may go into this great cities and sell merchandise and the surplus of our profit we may give as help to the poor and then shall we return to thee thine own money and when i heard this i was glad that they should take this altogether from me for the husbandry of charity for the poor and with a willing heart i gave them what they wanted and i accepted their written bond 
but would not take any other security from them except the written document. And they went abroad and gave to time, uh, gave to time poor as far as they were successful. Frequently, however, some of their goods were lost on the road or on the sea, or they would be robbed of them. Then they would come and say, we pray thee, act generously towards us in order that we may see how we can restore to you thine own. And when I heard this, I had sympathy with them and handed to them their bond and often having read it before them, tore it up and released them of their debt. Guys, this is sounding just like like a parable from Yahusha, but like the good kind of parable. Like this is exactly the, you know, the kind of heart he wanted for us to do um, to forgive people's debts. Saying to them, what I have consecrated for the benefit of the poor, I shall not take from you. So, so he's basically saying like he's giving his servants uh, these goods to go give the poor. Uh, and on their way, they're being robbed by thieves, pirates, whatever. And he's like, yeah, why am I going to, this was for the poor to begin with. Why am I going to you know, demand you guys pay me back for this? And so I accepted nothing from my debtor. And when a man with cheerful heart came to me saying, I am not in need to be compelled to be paid, to be a paid worker for the poor, but I wish to serve the needy at thy table. And he consented to work and he ate his share. So I gave him his wages nevertheless, and I went home rejoicing. And when he did not wish to take it, I forced him to do so, saying, I know that thou art a laboring man who looks for and waits for his wages, and thou must take it. Never did I defer paying the wages of the hireling or any other, nor keep back in my house for a single evening his hire that was due to him. So right here, he's actually, again, he's, whether he knows it or not, I I have to think that he does to some degree. Uh, it's not like the sons of Esau were that separated from the, the sons of Isaac at this point. Um, or I should say really from Abraham. He had to know that he was obeying Torah here. Uh, he's just going through the laws and just fulfilling them, paying everyone that night, that evening, you know, not waiting till the next morning, that kind of thing. Those that milk the cows uh, and the ewes signaled to the passerby that they should take their share. For the milk flowed in such plenty that it curdled into butter on the hills and by the roadside and by the rocks and the hills, the cattle lay, which had given birth to their offspring. And this actually comes from the book of Job. He talks about like the, the, the butter curdling on the hills and stuff like that. For my servant, uh, servants grew weary, keeping the meat of the widows and the poor and dividing it into small pieces. For they would curse and say, oh, that we had of his flesh that we could be satisfied. Although I was very kind to them. I also had six harps and six slaves to play the harps and also a, a cithara, a, a decachord, and I struck it during the day. And I took the cithara, and the widows responded after their meals. And with the musical instrument, I reminded them of Elohim, that they should give praise to Yahuwah. And when my female slaves would murmur, then I took the uh, musical instruments and played as much as they would have done for their wages and gave them respite for their labor and size. So this is quite the, the king here. He's, he's, <laughs> he's actually like entertaining the widows while they're coming to like eat their meals, and he's playing music from it. That's pretty awesome. Chapter four. And my children, after having taken charge of the service, took their meals each day along with their three sisters, beginning with the older brother, and made a feast. And I rose in the morning and offered a sin offering for them, 50 rams and 19 sheep. And what remained as a residue was consecrated to the poor. And I said to them, take these as residue and pray for my children. 
Perchance my sons have sinned before Yahuwah, speaking in haughtiness of, of Ruach. We are children of this rich man. Ours are all these goods. Why should we be servants of the poor? And speaking thus in a haughty spirit, they may have provoked the anger of Elohim. For overbearing pride is an abomination before Yahuwah. So it's interesting, he, he kind of like, it, it seems like he knows who Yahuwah is here, even though earlier we saw that he was, you know, he he looked at this uh, this idol in this temple and said, surely that can't be the creator. So he's kind of like Abraham, but he, unlike, uh, but he seems to have a really good knowledge of who he is. So I brought oxen as offerings to the priest at the altar saying, may my children never think evil towards Elohim in their hearts. While, while I lived in this matter, the seducer could not bear to see the good I did, and he demanded the warfare of Elohim against me. And he came upon me cruelly. First, okay, so I take that back. So this is actually after, the, after his conversion. So, um, okay, it's not beforehand. First, he burns up the large number of sheep, then the camels, then he burns up the cattle and all my herds. Or they were captured not only by enemies, but also by such as had received benefits from me. And the shepherds came and, and announced that to me. But when I heard it, I gave praise to Elohim and did not blaspheme. And when the seducer learned of my fortitude, he plotted new things against me. He disguised himself as king of Persia and besieged my city. And after he had let off all that were therein, he spoke to them in malice, saying in boastful language, this man, Job, who has obtained all the goods of the earth and left nothing for others, he, had he has destroyed and torn down the temple of Elohim. Therefore, shall I repay to him what he has done to the house of the great Elohim? Uh, and so if you missed that there, it's actually Satan uh, speaking for this king. And uh, the, the temple of Satan that uh, Job tore down, Satan is saying, was the temple of the great Elohim. So. Now come with me, and we shall pillage all that is left in his house. And they answered and said to him, He has seven sons and three daughters. Take heed, lest they flee into other lands, and they may become our tyrants, and then come over us, come over us with force and kill us. And he said, Be not at all afraid. His flocks and his wealth have I destroyed by fire, and the rest have I captured. And behold, his children shall I kill. And having spoken thus, he went and threw the house upon my children and killed them. So <clears throat> in the book of Job, it talks about the, like the, the great wind that comes uh, and destroys the house. But here it's like the wind blows the house. It's almost like I get this picture of like the Wizard of Oz or something like that. Like the house, you know, blows or it, it's thrown upon them. And my fellow citizens, no. No. go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to mention before you move on, uh, on 13, when he disguised himself as the king of Persia and besieged my city, and after he had led off all that were therein. So this can be quickly read over, but if you take this in context, he led, he led off all that were therein, and then he spoke to them in malice. Now we see, so the way I'm reading this is that he went in, conquered the city, and those that were good, he led off out of that city. And the ones that were left were the were the pagan ones that, when he was was speaking to them, 
they recognized where he was saying they destroyed and tore down the temple of God because that was their God, not the ones that he led out of the city of the good. That's how at least I'm seeing that being read. And I just want to point that out. That's a really good observation. That was really good. Um, okay. And then verse yeah, 20. Start, yeah, verse 20. Thank you. And having spoken thus, he went and threw the house upon my children and killed them. And my fellow citizens, seeing that what was said by him had become true, came and pursued me and robbed me of all that was in my house. And I saw with mine own eyes the pillage of my house. And men without culture and without honor sat at my table and on my couches, and I could not uh, remonstrate against them. For I was exhausted like a woman with her loins let loose from multitude of pains, remembering chiefly that this warfare had been predicted to me by Yahuwah through his angel. And I became like one who, when seeing the rough sea and the adverse winds, while the lading of the vessel in mid-ocean is too heavy, cast the burden into the sea, saying, I will destroy all this only in order to come safely into the city, so that I may take as profit the rescued ship and the best of my things. Thus did I manage my own affairs. But there came another messenger and announced to me the ruin of my own children, and I was shaken with terror. And I tore my clothes and said, Yahuwah hath given, Yahuwah hath taken. As it hath deemed best to Yahuwah, thus, thus it hath come to be. May the name of Yahuwah be blessed. Um, I, I, I kind of think, I see that scene there is really haunting where he goes to his house and he watches just these people ransacking everything. And, you know, it's, if ever, it's just, it's an interesting picture because his house was open on all four sides and people were always coming in and sitting at his, his couches and his tables and eating food. I mean, he was always offering it. And yet these people are coming and just like stealing it. Um, that, you know, the same thing that he offered to, uh, to the poor. It's just a really interesting picture. Chapter five. And when Satan saw that he could not uh, could that he could riot, put me to despair. Um, I wonder if I don't know, maybe that that word there is a little messed up. I don't know. He went and asked my body of a Yahuwah in order to inflict plague on me, for the evil one could not bear my patience. Then Yahuwah delivered me into his hands to use my body as he wanted. But he gave him no power over my soul. And that must be the steel that uh, the angel gave him. And he came to me as I was sitting on my throne, still mourning over my children. And he remembered a great hurricane. I'm sorry. And he resembled a great hurricane. That's, that, that's fascinating there because in all these biblical texts, we see Satan uh, taking, on, taking on the form of, like, like I said, like a rushing uh, river. And and this really shouldn't be surprising to anybody um, in a post-Newtonian scientific age. It would be, it, do, it doesn't make sense with reality. But, you know, in the book of, uh, we've gone over this in the book of uh, Enoch, in the book of Jubilees, it talks about how ruachs surround us in the, in the, in the hail, the, the clouds, the wind, the, the lightning and thunder, uh, the stars, right? Luminaries. And, and, and so um, Satan can... He's not he's not doing something that he's incapable of. He's manipulating something that he's he is very capable of. He is a ruach of spirit and he's taken on the the form of a hurricane. 
um, it kind of changes our perspective on storms, doesn't it? When we realize that there's, there's, you know, angels in those clouds, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. Anyway, then he resembled a great hurricane and turned over my throne and threw me upon the ground. And I continued lying on the floor for three hours. And he smote me with hard plague from the top of my head to the toes of my feet. And I left the city in great terror and woe and sat down upon, upon a dunghill, my body being worm eaten. That's really disgusting. And I wet the earth with the moistness of my sore body for matter flowed off my body and many worms covered it. And here's how much respect Job has for his, uh, his plague. And when a single worm crept off my body, I put it back saying, remain on the spot where thou hast been placed until he who hath sent thee will order thee elsewhere. That's, that is like a total fear of y'all right there. That's, that's incredible. Thus I endured for seven years, seven long years, sitting on a dunghill outside of the city while being plague stricken. And I saw with mine own eyes my long for children carried by angels to heaven. Now, this is one of the big uh, this is one of the big questions I have over the book. And when we talk about Greek colonization, um, you know, the fact that his children are carried to heaven um I'll let you guys kind of, we can discuss that later and, and see what's really going on there. You know, why weren't they taken to Sheol? Is this just a vision he has? Is this like he's seeing into the future? Or what's really going on there? And my humbled wife, who had been brought to her bridal chamber in such great luxuriousness and with spearmen as bodyguards, I saw her do a water carrier's work like a slave in the house of a common man in order to win some bread and bring it to me. And in my sore affliction, I said, Oh, that these braggart city rulers, whom I uh, soul not have thought to be equal with, um, my shepherd dog should now employ my wife as servant. And after this, I took courage again. Yet afterwards, they withheld even the bread that it should only have her own nourishment. But she took it and divided it between herself and me, saying woefully, Woe to me, forthwith. He may no longer feed on bread, and he cannot go to the market to ask bread of the bread sellers in order to bring it to me that he may eat. And when Satan learned this, he took the guise of a bread seller, and it was as if by chance that my wife met him and asked him for bread, thinking that it was that sort of man. But Satan said to her, Give me the value, and then take what thou wishest. Whereupon she answered, saying, Where shall I get money? Does thou not know what misfortune happened to me? If thou hast pity, show it to me. If not, thou shalt be. And he replied, saying, If you did not deserve this misfortune, you would not have suffered all this. Now, if there is no silver piece in thine hand, give me the hair of thine head and take three loaves of bread for it, so that you may live on there for three days. All right, so if you ever have a creepy conversation with this, like like somebody like this, where they're asking uh, you to shave your head and for three days worth of bread, just, you know, that, that might be a clue that you're, that you're actually talking to Satan. Then she said to herself, what is the hair of my head in comparison with my starving husband? And so after having pondered over the matter, she said to him, rise and cut off my hair. Then he took a pair of scissors and took off the hair of her head in the presence of all and gave her three loaves of bread. 
Then she took them and brought them to me. And Satan went behind her on the road, hiding himself as he walked and troubling her heart greatly. Um, that's that. I mean, that's another crazy scene right there where she doesn't even she she didn't recognize the bread seller as Satan, and now she doesn't even recognize that he's actually following her on the way to see Job and just you know plaguing, troubling her heart. And immediately my wife came near me and crying aloud and weeping. She said, Job, Job, how long wilt thou sit upon the dunghill outside of the city, pondering yet for a while and expecting to obtain your hope for salvation? And I have been wandering from place to place, roaming about as a hired servant. Behold, uh, thy memory has already died away from earth. And my sons and the daughters that I carried on my bosom and the labors and pains that I sustained have been for nothing. And thou sittest in the uh, melodorous state of soreness and worms, passing the nights in the cold air. And I have undergone all trials and troubles and pains day and night until I succeeded in bringing bread to thee. For your surplus of bread is no longer allowed to me. And as I can scarcely take my own food and divide it between us, I pondered in my heart that it was not right that thou should be in pain and hunger for bread. And so I ventured to go to the market without bashfulness. And when the bread seller told me, give me money and thou shalt have bread, I disclosed to him our state of distress. Then I heard him say, if thou hast no money, hand me the hair of thy head and take three loaves of bread in order that ye may live on these three days. And I yielded to the wrong and said to him, rise and cut off my hair. And he rose and in disgrace cut off with the scissors the hair of my head on the marketplace while the crowd stood by and wondered. Who would then not be astonished, saying, is this Sittis, so that's her name, Sittis, the wife of Job, who had 14 curtains to cover her inner sitting room and doors within doors, so that he was, uh, so that he was greatly honored who would be brought near her. And now behold, she barters off her hair for bread, who had camels laden with goods, and they were brought into remote lands to the poor. And now she sells her hair for bread. Behold, her who had seven tables immovably set in her house, at which each poor man and each stranger ate, and now she sells her hair for bread. Behold, her who had the basin wherewith to wash her feet made of gold and silver, and now she walks upon the ground and sells her hair for bread. Behold, her who had her garments made of uh, byssus interwoven with gold, and now she exchanges her hair for bread. Behold, her who had couches of gold and of silver, and now she sells her hair for bread. In short, then, Job, after the many things that have been said to me, I now say in one word to thee, since the feebleness of my heart has crushed my bones, rise then and take these loaves of bread and enjoy them, and then speak some word against Yahuwah and die. For I, too, would exchange the torpor of death for the sustenance of my body. And so um, it's kind of interesting that this is where we're like in, I think, Job chapter two or something like that, the book of Job, um, when basically Job's wife has that one liner where she's like, curse God and die. Uh, and here we see that it's actually Satan speaking for her, essentially. Like, it, it seems to be, it, it's almost the same thing as like, you know, Yahusha is telling uh Kifa, you know, get behind, you know, get behind me, Satan. 
But I replied to her, behold, I have been for these seven years plague stricken and I have stood the worms of my body and I was not weighed down in my soul by all these pains. And as to the word which thou sayest, speak some word against Elohim and die. Together with thee, I will sustain the evil which thou seest. And let us endure the ruin of all that we have. Yet thou desirest that we should say some word against Elohim, and that he should be exchanged for the great Pluto, the Elohim of the nether world. And uh, just point out there, I know that the 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 Greek, uh, or let's see, Pluto is Roman. The Roman uh, god uh, Elohim did not exist back then. But this text is, um, oh, is, is this, I don't, it, maybe it's Coptic. Uh, and this was not the original language. So we don't really know what the name of the Elohim that was put there, uh, the Elohim of the netherworld. Uh, why dost thou not remember those great uh, goods which we possessed? If these goods come from the lands of Yahuwah, should not we also endure evils and be high-minded in everything until Yahuwah will have mercy again and show pity to us? Doth thou not see the seducer stand behind thee and confound thy thoughts in order that thou shouldst beguile me? So he, so boom, there it is. He actually sees Satan basically aiding his wife and speaking these accusations and words to him. And he turned to Satan and said, why dost thou not come openly to me? Stop hiding thyself, thou wretched one. Does the lion show his strength in the weasel cage? Or does the bird fly in the basket? I now tell thee, go away and wage thy war against me. Um, that's pretty powerful stuff right there. That, it, yeah, it, well, it's interesting that like Satan wouldn't, it, and it's true, the book of Job, he never, we never see him like just show himself to Job. Uh, he's always kind of like, yeah, it's just interesting that he's working, kind of trying to hide, weasel his way through other people. Then he went off from behind my wife and placed himself before me, crying. And he said, Behold, Job, I yield and give way to thee, who art but flesh, while I am a spirit. Thou art plague-stricken, but I am in great trouble. For I am like a wrestler, contesting with a wrestler who has, in a single-handed combat, torn down his antagonist and covered him with dust and broken every limb of his, whereas the other one, who lies beneath, having displayed his bravery, gives forth sounds of triumph testifying to his own superior excellence. Thus thou, O Job, art beneath and stricken with plague and pain, and yet thou hast carried the victory in the wrestling match with me, and behold, I yield to thee. Then he left me abashed. Now, my children, do you also show a firm heart in all the evil that happens to you? For greater than all things is firmness of heart. So what Satan was essentially saying there, it's like, you know, he basically, he defeated him in every way. It's like, it's like, you know, it's, a, it's, you know, it's almost like you're tied down in a, um, uh, in a wrestling match and they're just waiting for you to slap the, whatever, like your way out, like you're defeated. And Job's like, he's like, no, actually I've, I beat you Satan and it doesn't matter what you can do to me. I've, I've won. Right. And that, that, that's a fascinating outcome. Um, the way yeah, to look no. at it. Yeah, no, he, he, we see here he 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 totally calls him out and and says to him, you know, you know, talking about talking about the analogy of, you know, does a does a lion jump out when it's, you know, when there's nothing to jump out really at. So he's challenging him to show himself and with that challenge 
the seducer comes to him crying and basically conceding to him. And it, it, at first, when you read this, you're like, oh, he's conceding. He, he won, but he's just doing playing another game on him just to show yeah. that, okay, yeah, yeah, you won, you won. I'm sorry. You know, I can't do anything against you. And then, of course, he comes back later. Mind games. Yes. Chapter seven. At this time, ask a question. Yes. Sorry. Um, is this so? Is Satan working for the Most High at this point, or has he been tossed out of heaven? Because it seems like I don't know. He's he's still working with the Most High to like test his people. Or is this a different Satan that we see in Enoch? Like, is Azazel? No, I, someone, I, I think this know. is. I think this is the Satan. Um, you know, it has been debated, you know, in the book of Job that that when it says the accuser, you know, the Satan um, goes up with the angels is I, I think Michael Heiser is one of those that he talks about how it's not necessarily the Satan, that it is just the, you know, it could be any number of accusers. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that that's a definitely point to consider, but it, it, it seems like this here is to say, no, this is the Satan, the accuser. Um, we saw last week when he was already kicked out of paradise. And of course, paradise. So you have the throne of Yah uh, in the in heaven and the throne of Yah overlooks the, the temple in heaven with the name of the Messiah on it. Uh, and this comes from multiple different sources. And then you have on one hand, and this is kind of not important whether this is factual or not, but it seems like multiple sources say that uh, the lake of fire is on one side of the of the throne in paradise on the other. And so uh, we discussed last week with the revelation of Moshe that uh, every single hour of the day, different aspects of the spiritual world of creation, different ruachs of whether it's, you know, animals or, you know, the, the luminaries, whatever uh, they at different hours of the day, they all give praise to the most high. And there's one hour of the day when the angels enter into the throne room of Yahuwah to give him praise. And that is when Satan kind of slips in um, with the other seraphim and so on and so forth. That's when he slipped in to, uh, to deceive Adam and Eve. And actually their angels who were with them in paradise left to worship the Most High. And he was able to come in. So we see a similar scene where uh, in the book of Job that, you know, if you pay attention to the book of Job, uh, Yahuwah basically calls out the accuser in the crowd. He's like, you know, where have you, where have you been? And he's like, oh, I've been, you know, going about the earth, to, you know, you know, you know, walking and so on and so forth. Uh, I always find that kind of interesting. So I don't know if that answers that, uh, but he he seems to be able to, for whatever reason, even though he's been thrown out of, he's been kicked out of his throne in paradise. Uh, he seems to be able to go with the angels um, at a, the appointed hour up there. And we see, uh, we saw last week that even there's an appointed hour in the day when even the demons have to give reverence to the Most High, which is really interesting. Okay. Um, all right. So let's just start from the top, chapter seven. And it's funny we're in chapter seven, but this is like chapter two or something of Job. Uh, you never get the sense that there's these seven years before uh, the four, the three guys and the fourth guy show up. At this time, the kings heard what had happened to me, and they rose and came to me, each from his land to visit me and comfort me. And when they came near me, they cried with a loud voice, and each tore his clothes. 
And after they had prostrated themselves, touching the earth with their heads, they sat down next to me for seven days and seven nights and non-spoke a word. And I, I, I should have compared notes on this. I think the book of Job says the same thing, that they sat there for seven days in silence. Uh, they were four in number. Uh, Eliphaz, the king of Teman, and Balad, and Sophar, and Elihu. And when they had taken their seat, they conversed about what had happened to me. Now when for time, first uh, first time they had come to me, and I had shown them my precious stones, they were astonished and said, If of us three kings all their possessions would be brought together into one, it would not come up to the precious stones of Jobab's kingdom or his crown. For thou art of greater nobility than all the people of the east. And uh, this, you know, must be too that, you know, he comes from Abraham as well. And when therefore they now came to the land of Uz to visit me, they asked in the city, where is Jobab, the ruler of this whole land? And they told them concerning me, he sitteth upon the dunghill outside of the city, for he has not entered the city for seven years. And then again, they inquired concerning my possessions, and there was revealed to them all that happened to me. And when they had learned this, they went out of the city with the inhabitants, and my fellow citizens pointed me out to them. But these remonstrated and said, Surely this is not Jobab. And while they hesitated, there sat Eliphaz, the king of Timan. Come, let us step near and see. And when they came near, I remembered them, and I wept very much when I learned the purpose of their journey. And I threw earth upon my head. And while shaking my head, I revealed unto them that I was Job. And when they saw me shake my head, they threw themselves down upon the ground, all overcome with emotion. And while their hosts were standing around, I saw the three kings lie upon the ground for three hours like dead. Then they arose and said to each other, We cannot believe that this is Jobab. And finally, after they had for seven days inquired after everything concerning me and searched for my flocks and other possessions, they said, do we not know how many goods were sent by him to the cities and the villages round about to be given to the poor? Aside from all that was given away by him within his own house. Uh, I, I guess that's, I, I, I'm not sure. Oh, oh then how? How then could he, uh, he have fallen into such a state of perdition and mis misery? And after the seven days, Eluhu, Eluhu said to the kings, Come, let us step near and examine him accurately, whether he truly is Jobab or not. And they, being not half a mile stadium distant from his malodorous uh, body, they rose and stepped near, carrying perfume in their hands, while their soldiers went with them and threw fragrant incense round about them so that they could come near me. You have to wonder, I guess, I guess he didn't have a bath in seven years i mean yeah just that he had to be just disgusting like just one big like i don't know just his hair had to be matted and just disgusting all just crust and after they had thus passed three hours covering the way with aroma they drew nigh and eliphaz began and said art thou indeed job our fellow king art thou art thou the one who owned the great glory Art thou he who once shone like the sun of day upon the whole earth? Art thou he who once resembled the moon and the stars, effulgent throughout the night? 
And I answered and said, I am. And thereupon all wept and lamented, and they sang a royal song of lamentation, their whole army joining them in a chorus. And again, Eliphaz said to me, Art thou he who had ordered 7,000 sheep to be given for the clothing of the poor? Whither then hath gone the glory of thy throne? Art thou he who had ordered 3,000 cattle to do the plowing of the field for the poor? Whither then hath thy glory gone? Art thou he who had golden couches, and now thou sittest upon a dunghill? Whither then hath thy glory gone? Art thou he who had sixty tables set for the poor? Art thou he who had censers for the fine perfume made of precious stone? And now thou art in a melodorous state. Whither then hath thy glory gone? Art thou he who had golden candelabras set upon silver stands? And now must thou long for the natural gleam of the moon. Whither then hath thy glory gone? Art thou the one who had ointment made of the spices of frankincense? And now thou art in a state of repulsiveness. Whither then hath thy glory gone? Art thou he who laughed the wrongdoers and sinners to scorn, and now thou hast become the laughingstock to all? Whither then hath thy glory gone? And when Eliphaz had for a long time cried and lamented, while all the others joined him, so that the commotion was very great, I said to them, Be silent, and I will show you my throne and the glory of its splendor. My glory will be everlasting. The whole... So just okay, just when we get into just imagine like okay, he's sat on a dunghill for seven years. I mean, his he's got worms coming out of his body. Uh he he's gotta have these sores like you can't imagine. And you guys can just picture this. And then his speech right here, like we understand, you know, this idea of the resurrection, and we are going to be, you know, more glorious than the luminaries and so on and so forth. Um, but you know, it's to these guys, it sounds like he's just boasting, right? So listen to his words. I said to them, be silent. and I will show you my throne and the glory of its splendor. My glory will be everlasting. The whole world shall perish and its glory shall vanish. And all those who hold fast to it will remain beneath. But my throne is in the upper world and its glory and splendor will be to the right of the savior in the heavens. There's a messianic passage right there. My throne exists in the life of the holy ones and its glory in the imperishable world. For rivers will be dried up and their arrogance shall go down to the depth of the abyss. But the streams of my land in which my throne is erected shall not dry up, but shall remain unbroken in strength. The kings perish and the rulers vanish and the glory and pride is as the shadows in a looking glass. But my kingdom lasts forever and ever and its glory and beauty is in the chariot of my father. That's, that's, um, I mean, that, that's why he was able to sit there for seven years and just recognize that like, it, it doesn't really matter whether he was in a cush house, uh, on a golden couch or in the dung, uh, heap because it's all fading away and he knew where his true, uh, kingdom was. That's a pretty incredible, um, mindset he had. When I spoke thus to them, uh, Eliphaz became angry and said to the other friends, For what purpose is it that we have come here with our host to comfort him? Behold, he upbraids us. Therefore, let us return to our countries. This man sits here in misery, worm eaten, amidst an unbearable state of putrefaction, and yet he challenges its saving. 
kingdom shall perish and their rulers, but my kingdom, says he, shall last forever. Eliphaz then rose in great commotion, and turning away from them in great fury, said, I go hence. We have indeed come to comfort him, but he declares war to us in view of our armies. But then Baldad seized him by the hand and said, Not thus ought one to speak to an afflicted man, and especially to one stricken down with so many plagues. Behold, we, being in good health, dared not approach him on account of the offensive odor, except with the health help of plenty of fragrant aroma. But thou, Eliphaz, art forgetful of all this. Let me speak plainly. Let us be uh, magnanimous and learn what is the cause. Must he, in remembering his former days of happiness, not become mad in his mind? Who should not be altogether perplexed, seeing himself thus lapse into misfortune and plagues? But let me step near him, that I may find by what cause is he thus? And Baldad rose and approached me, saying, Art thou Job? And he said, Is thy heart still in good keeping? And I said, I did not hold fast to the earthly things, since the earth with all the inhabit, uh, with all that inhabited is unstable. But my heart holds fast to the heaven, because there is no trouble in heaven. Then Baldad rejoined and said, We know that the earth is unstable, for it changes according to season. At times it is in a state of peace, and at times in a state of war. But of the heaven we hear that it is perfectly steady. But art thou truly in a state of calmness? Therefore let me ask and speak. And when thou answerest me to my first word, I shall have a second question to ask. And if again thou answerest in well-set words, it will be manifest that thy heart has not been unbalanced. So they're basically trying to find out if he's a madman as well. Because, you know, and they're thinking, this guy, this guy must be mad. And I said, upon what dost thou set thy hope? And I said, upon the living Elohim. And he said to me, who deprived thee of all thou didst possess? And who inflicted thee with these plagues? And I said, Elohim. And he said, <laughs> so it's like, it's like an imbalanced actor. Like Job is like saying, look, like, my my kingdom is with Elohim in heaven. Oh, but who did this to you, Job? Oh, Elohim did. Like that. <laughs> right. And he said, uh, and he said, if thou still places thy hope upon Elohim, how can he do wrong in judgment? Having brought upon thee these plagues and misfortunes, and having taken from thee all thy possessions. And since he has taken these, it is clear that he has given thee nothing. No king will disgrace his soldier who has served him well as bodyguard. And he brings up a good point, right? He's like, he's like, look, what, if this Elohim of yours, you know, is going to give you this riches and this kingdom in heaven, why would he disgrace you like this on the earth? And I answered saying, who understands the depths of Yahuwah and of his wisdom to be able to accuse Elohim of injustice? And Baldad said, answer me, O Job, to this. Again, I say to thee, if thou art in the state of calm reason, teach me if thou hast wisdom. Why do we see the sun rise in the east and set in the west? And again, when rising in the morning, we find him rise in the east. Tell me thy thoughts about this. Then said I, why shall I betray or babble forth the mighty mysteries of Elohim? And should my mouth stumble in revealing these belonging to the master? Never. Who are we that we should pry into matters concerning the upper world while we are only of flesh? Nay. 
earth and ashes. In order that you know that my heart is sound, hear what I ask you. And by the way, I, you know, one of the things I love about Job is that some of the mysteries that they're contemplating back then, we still don't know today. Like I, I, you know, we all, we're all coming from the, from a Copernican universe, right? Like we're all coming out of that. I assume everybody here uh, agrees that the earth is not a globe spinning through space. Uh, Maybe there's some convex earthers here. Uh, I'm a flat earthist. But really, like, if you try to explain what's going on with the heavens, with the sun, like, we have our ideas, but we still don't know. And, you know, he's asking him, like, tell me, tell me how the sun, you know, goes down in the west and comes back up in the east again. And Job's like, I I don't know, guys. Like, I, you know, I'm a fleshy guy. I don't know the inner workings of heaven. And we still really, the same thing today. All right. Uh, in order that you know that my heart is sound, hear what I ask you. Through through the stomach cometh food, and water you drink through the mouth, and then it flows through the same throat. And when the two go down to become excrement, they again part. Who affects this separation? And Baldad said, I do not know. And I rejoined and said to him, If thou dost not understand even the exits of the body, how can thou understand the celestial circuits? Then so far rejoined and said, We do not inquire after our own affairs, but we desire to know whether thou art in a sound state. And behold, we see that thy reason has not been shaken. What now dost thou wish that we should do for thee? Behold, we have come here and brought the physicians of three kings, and if thou wishest, thou mayest be cured by them. But I answered and said, My cure and my restoration cometh from Elohim, the maker of physicians. That's uh, hope. That's kind of Sarah's and my philosophy when we uh, when we get ready to die. It's you know, we're only gonna, yeah, we're only gonna go so far with the doctors, and we're gonna recognize that Yahuwah is our our caretaker, and He can give us life or He can take it away. I don't need science to extend it any further. Chapter 9. And when I had spoke thus to them, behold, there my wife sitteth, came running, dressed in rags, from the service of the master by whom she was employed, a slave, uh, though she had been forbidden to leave, lest the kings, on seeing her, might take her as captive. And when she came, she threw herself prostrate to their feet, crying, saying, Remember, Eliphaz, and ye other friends, what I was once with you, and how I have changed, how I am now dressed to meet you. Then the kings broke forth in great weeping, and being in double perplexity, they kept silent. But Eliphaz took his purple mantle and cast it about her to wrap herself up with it. But she asked him, saying, I ask the favor of you, my lords, that you order your soldiers that they should dig among the ruins of our house, which fell upon my children, so that their bones could be brought in a perfect state to the tombs. For as we have, owing to our misfortune, no power at all, so we may at least see their bones. For have I, like a brute, the motherly feeling of wild beasts, that my ten children should have perished on one day, and not to one of them could I give a decent burial. And the kings gave order that the ruins of my house should be dug up, but I prohibited it, saying, Do not go to the trouble in vain, for my children will not be found, for they are in the keeping of their maker and ruler. And the kings answered and said, who will gainsay that he is out of his mind and raves? For while, for while we desire to bring the bones of his children back, he forbids us to do so, saying, They have been taken and placed the, uh, the keeping of their maker. Therefore, prove unto us the truth. 
But I said to them, raise me that I may stand up. And they lifted me, holding up my arms from both sides. And I stood upright and pronounced first the praise of Elohim. And after the prayer, I said to them, look with your eyes to the east. And they looked and saw my children with crowns near the glory of the king, the ruler of heaven. And when my wife Sittis saw this, though, um, I, I don't know what you guys think is happening here. It appears like Job is saying uh, that their, their bones aren't even there, that their children have uh, body and all have, I don't know, uh, are they like in a resurrected state? I don't know what this is ultimately happening here. So if anyone has any thoughts on this, let me know, because it seems to be implying that, that their bones are gone too. So it's not just their their spirit or their soul they're seeing, but their actual bodies uh, being uh, taken care of in paradise, which we have seen this happen multiple times in these texts. Yeah, my only... Go ahead. Yeah, no, my only other input is either that or they saw some new stars in the heavens that were presented so that they would see them in the sky. It's That, that, that was my other option of thinking of that verse. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, that that's really fascinating. Um, and that that goes in with some of the theories people have that you know stars are actually reflections of the set apart ones. Um, yeah, so, there there is scripture to that. So yeah. Yep. Okay. And when my wife Sidis saw this, she fell to the ground and prostrated herself before Elohim, saying, "Now I know that my memory remains with Yahuwah." And after she had spoken this, and the evening came, she went to the city, back to the master whom she served as slave, and lay herself down at the manger of the cattle, and died there from exhaustion. And when her, um, sorry, I have a mouse in the, way, in the way, and when her despotic master searched for her and did not find her, he came to the fold of his herds, and there he saw her stretched out upon the manger dead, while all the animals around were crying about her. And all who saw her wept and lamented, and the cry extended throughout the whole city. And the people brought her down and wrapped her up and buried her by the house which had fallen upon her children. And the poor of the city made a great mourning for her and said, Behold, this Sidis, who like in nobility and in glory is not found in any woman. Alas, she was not found worthy of a proper tomb. The dirge for her you will find in the record. Yeah, you know, the, this story on Sittis, uh, is a was a tearjerker for me when you, you realize... She's gone through quite a bit too, like Job, where she's become a servant, where she was in this luxury. Now she's been a servant for the last seven years and doing everything and anything she could just to even feed her husband, who is incapable. Uh, and to come to this demise, it was, it's just a, a sad ending, is the way I saw that. Yeah. Chapter 10. <clears throat> But Eliphaz and those that were with him were astonished at these things. And they sat down with me and replying to me, spoke in boastful words concerning me for 27 days. They repeated it again and again that I suffered deservedly thus for having committed many sins and that there was no hope left for me. But I retorted to these men in zest of contention myself. And they rose in anger, ready to part in wrathful spirit. But Elihu con conjured them to stay yet a little while until he would have shown them what it was. For, said he, so many days did you pass, allowing Job to boast that he is just, but I shall no longer suffer it. 
For from the beginning did I continue crying over him, remembering his former happiness. But now he speaks boastfully and in overbearing pride. He says that he has his throne in the heavens. Therefore, hear me, and I will tell you what is the cause of his destiny. So um, as we go further here into uh, into Elihu, and now he's the fourth in the book of Job. You have the three friends and he's the fourth, uh, the fourth friend that comes in at the end. Um, pay attention here how he's the, his Elihu's contention again is that his throne is in the heavens. All right. Just put that in, in, in your mind. Then imbued with the spirit of Satan. So Elihu is now speaking for Satan, right? And his contention is that Job, like Satan is trying to destroy Job. And as he's destroying him, uh, it's just, you know, just like he did with Adam and Eve, right? Like we read the prophecy last week that Adam would sit on the throne of Satan in paradise. That was once where Satan sat. Uh, you know, we see the same thing here. And it just has to irk Satan that, you know, he's going to, he's going to, once again, Job is going to be on one of the thrones that was reserved for, you know, his kind. And Leo yeah. spoke hard. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, this is the part where I, I talked about where Satan was conceding to Job, and now here he comes as the, this uh, entering into this fourth guy, just stirring the pot. Then imbued with the spirit of Satan, Elihu spoke hard words, which are written down in the records left of Elihu. So here it refers to these records of Elihu, which we no longer have. Um, that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And after he had ended, Elohim appeared to me in a storm. <clears throat> this is, of course, my favorite part in the book of Job when he, you know, he actually comes in this like tornado. Like, you know, if you've ever faced down a tornado and then uh, th that's terrifying enough, but then you have to place the most high in there. And he's like, you know, a girdle, you know, your, uh, your loins like a man and, you know, answer me if you know, right? This is that passage in uh, like Job chapter 40. Elihim appeared to me in a storm and in clouds and spoke, blaming Elihu and showing me that he who had spoken was not a man, but a wild beast. And when Elihim had finished speaking to me, Yahuwah spoke to Eliphaz, Thou and thy friends have sinned, in that ye have not spoken the truth concerning my servant Job. Therefore rise up and make him bring a sin offering for you, in order that your sins may be forgiven. For were it not for him, I would have destroyed you. And so they brought to me all that belonged to a sacrifice, and I took it and brought for them a sin offering, and Yahuwah received it favorably and forgave them their wrong. Then when Eliphaz, Beldad, and Sophar saw that Elohim had graciously pardoned their sin through his servant Job, but that he did not uh, deign, I guess, to pardon Elihu, then did Eliphaz begin to sing a hymn while the others responded, their soldiers also joining while standing by the altar. And Eliphaz spoke thus, Taken off is the sin and our injustice gone, but Elihu, the evil one, shall have no re remembrance among the living. His luminary is extinguished and has lost its light. Okay, so that's really interesting right there, that line. Um, I don't know what, what you think about that, Rob, but it sounds to me like it's actually like a double meaning for Satan, like he, Satan, the way I read that is that Satan was, had a luminary and that it is extinguished and gone. That's yeah. how I read it. Yeah. As you read these, a uh, couple uh, sentences here reminds me of uh, the description of the king of, um, 
what was it? Um, uh, I'm going blank on the name. Where it's, 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 it's in Isaiah, right? Oh, there's yeah. also Ezekiel, but it's yeah, it's describing the king, and it's related to Satan. It's describing a king, but it's describing Satan. You know, type of deal. Yeah. I forgot yeah. the name. The glory of his lamp will announce itself for him, for he is the son of darkness and not of light. So yeah, that's describing uh, uh, Satan. The doorkeepers, the doorkeepers of the place of darkness shall give him their glory and beauty a share. His kingdom hath vanished, his throne hath moldered, and the honor of his stature is in Sheol or Hades. For he has loved the beauty of the serpent and the scales skins of the dragon. His gall and his venom belong to the northern one. The uh, these notes here, the the Zephuni adder, for he did not own himself unto Yahuwah, nor did he fear him, but he hated those whom he hath chosen, known. And um, wow, I mean that just says it all right there, right? Like you, you see, you see a complete contrast. Like Job is the complete opposite. Of Satan. If Satan is darkness, Job is light, right? Like Satan wants to bring everyone uh, down from heaven to earth so that he can exalt himself to heaven. But Job is, while he is brought down to earth, is exalted up to heaven. Like it's just like a complete opposite um, here. And um, whereas Job's kingdom will go on forever, Satan's kingdom will be brought to an end and completely extinguished. Thus Elohim forgot him, and the holy ones forsook him. His wrath and anger shall be unto him desolation, and he will have no mercy in his heart nor peace, because he had the venom of an adder on his tongue. Um, and we're seeing that that's kind of an interesting description of Satan, the, the, the adder uh, tongue. Uh, we're kind of getting into reptilian territory there, but really seraphim. and. Uh, you know the 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 watchers. I, I I needed to do a whole. I want to do a whole uh, Thursday night study one time on just how the seraphim and the watchers are described, like these these serpents, and that's just really interesting description there. Righteous is Yahuwah, and his judgments are true. With him there is no preference of person, for he judgeth all alike. Behold, Yahuwah cometh. Behold, the holy ones have been prepared. The crowns and the prizes of the victors precede them. Let the saints rejoice and let their hearts exalt in gladness, for they shall receive the glory which is in store for them. And then there's this word chorus. I was looking in, in the original translation. It's there. I, I don't know what that word chorus really is there for, unless if it's going into like a song here. Our sins are forgiven. Our injustice has been cleansed. But Elihu had not no remembrance among the living. After Eliphaz had finished the hymn, we rose and went back to the city, each to the house where they lived. And the people made a feast for me in gratitude and delight of Elohim. And all my friends came back to me. And all those who had seen me in my former state of happiness asked me, saying, What are those three things here amongst us? Chapter 11. I think we got two chapters left. We're almost done. But I, being desirous to take up again my work of benevolence for the poor, asked them, saying, Give me each a lamb for the clothing of the poor in their state of nakedness, and four coins of silver or gold. Then Yahuwah blessed all that was left to me. And after a few days, I became rich again in merchandise, in flocks, and all things which I had lost. And I received all in double number again. Then I also took a wife, your mother, and became the father of you, ten in place of the 
10 children that had died. And of course, so this is Dinah. And now my children, let me admonish you. Behold, I die. You will take my place. Only do not forsake Yahuwah. Be charitable towards the poor. Do not disregard the feeble. Take not unto yourselves wives from strangers. Behold, my children, I shall divide among you what I possess, so that each may have control over his own and have full power to do good with his share. And after he had spoken thus, he brought all his goods and divided them among his seven sons, but he gave nothing of his goods to his daughters. Uh, then they said to, the, uh, to their father, uh, our Adonai and father, are we not also the, thy children? Why then dost thou not also give us a share of thy possessions? Then said Job to his daughters, do not become angry, my daughters. I have not forgotten you. Behold, I, for, I have preserved for you a possession better than that which your brothers have taken. And he called his daughters, whose name was Day uh, or Yimima, and said to her, um, where, where else was I? Uh, I wrote that paper, Rob, and I, I'm trying to remember where else um, the name of his three daughters are quoted. I can't remember now. But anyways, we have multiple sources on the – what was that? I'll anyways, look yeah, uh, it's it's uh, I can bring it up later. But anyways, we have multiple witnesses on the names of these daughters. So, um, and these would have been Dinah's daughters. Uh, the uh, called the daughter whose name was Day or Yimama and said to her, "Take this double ring used as a key and go to the treasure house and bring me the golden casket that I may give you your possession." And she went and brought it to him, and he opened it and took out three stringed girdles about the appearance of which no man can speak. For they were not earthly work, but celestial sparks of light flashed through them like the rays of the sun. And he gave one string to each of his daughters and said, Put these girdles around you in order that all the days of your life they may encircle you and endow you with everything good. And the other daughter, whose name was Cassia, said, Is this the possession of which thou sayest it is better than that of our brothers? What now can we live on this? And their father said to them, not only have you here sufficient to live on, but these bring you into a better world to live in, in the heavens. Or do you not know, my children, the value of these things here? Here then, when Yahuwah had deemed me worthy to have compassion on me and to take off my body the plagues and the worms, he called me and handed to me these three strings. And he said to me, rise and gird up thy loins like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. And I took them and girt them around my loins, and immediately did the worms leave my body, and likewise did the plagues, and my whole body took new strength through Yahuwah. And thus I passed on, and though I had never suffered, or I'm sorry, as though I had never suffered, but also in my heart I forgot the pains. Then spoke Yahuwah unto me in his great power and showed to me all that was and will be. And we see a lot in this kind of ancient literature, um, these ideas of these items of power. It's almost like something from Indiana Jones, but uh, another item that came from heaven or paradise that was uh, given to Job here. Now then, my children, in keeping these, you will not have the enemy plotting against you, nor evil intentions in your mind, because this is a charm from Yahuwah. Rise then and gird these around you before I die in order that you may see the angels come at my parting so that you may behold with wonder the powers of Elohim. Then rose the one whose name was Day 
and girt herself. And immediately she departed her body, as her father had said, and she put on another heart, as if she never cared for earthly things. And she sang angelic hymns in the voice of angels, and she chanted forth the angelic praise of Elohim while dancing. Then the other daughter, Cassia by name, put on the girdle, and her heart was transformed, so that she no longer wished for worldly things. And her mouth assumed the dialect of the heavenly rulers, and she sang the uh, donology of the works of the high place. And if anyone wishes to know the work of the heavens, he may take an insight into the hymns of Cassia. So I don't know if maybe the, the, the hymns of Cassia still exist. I don't know. Um, they're, they're seeming to imply that at the time this was written, that they did exist. Then did the other daughter by the name of Malthia's Horn, or Kareen Hapuk, gird herself, and her mouth spoke in the language of those on high. For her heart was transformed, being lifted above the worldly things. She spoke in the dialect of the cherubim, singing the praise of the ruler of the cosmic powers and extolling their glory. And he who, he who desires to follow the vestiges of the glory of the Father will find them written down in the prayers of Amalthea's uh, horn. And once again, I've never read those prayers. I don't know if you guys have. Uh, that's something I'd like to kind of seek out. My guess is they're, you know, they burned in the Library of Alexandria, but who knows? Chapter 12, finishing up here. We're almost done. After these three had finished singing hymns, did I, Nahor, or Neros, brother of Job, sit down next to him as he lay down? So we now, we know who wrote this book. It's uh, the brother of Job. And I heard the marvelous great things of the three daughters of my brother, one always succeeding the other amidst awful silence. And I wrote down this book containing the hymns, except the hymns and signs of the Holy Word, for these were the great things of Elohim. So. Um, so it almost sounds like he's um, what he's saying here is that the book of Job has many of the the sayings of the Most High, uh, but here he has not written them down, which we, of course we haven't seen. So that's my understanding of that that passage right there. And Job lay down from sickness on his couch, yet without pain and suffering, because his pain did not take strong hold of him on account of the charm of the girdle which he had wound around himself. But after three days, Job saw the holy angels come for his soul. And instantly he rose and took the uh, Scythera and gave it to his daughter Day. And to Cassia, he gave a censer with perfume. Uh, and to uh, Amalthea's horn music, he gave a timbrel in order that they might bless the holy angels who came for his soul. Really interesting scene. Last week, we talked about the... Um, what happens when we die, according to Second Ezra, and also in uh, the Revelation of Moshe, and how you have like these seven days, and um, you know you're kind of the the righteous are in, in joy, the wicked are in torments, and then you're put down to sleep in Sheol. Um, and so here we see a scene where they can actually see the angels coming for him, um, and it's kind of interesting that they're actually playing music to bless the holy angels. That's a really I don't know how many of you guys, how, how many here actually think about that, of, you know, playing music to to bless the angels around us, our guardian angels, and so on and so forth. That's a, I, that, I go through days never thinking about that. So I'm going to start doing that. That's a pretty awesome thought, awesome thought on, on a part uh, from a, a set of part one's departure, you know? Yeah, I mean, think about that. Like there's, um, you know, 
I mean, imagine if you were a guardian angel and you had to guard someone like you would, you could have like a really rotten sort of person to guard and be like, this, this stinks, you know, but it would be nice to, you know, guard somebody who actually blesses you. Right. Like that, that's kind of a cool thought. Like, why not bless the angels that are guarding us? Um, and there are multiple, I've seen multiple passages and I think, uh, did I read it last week? Or maybe I will in one of the future books we read about how everyone does have uh, these angels that guard us, that are um, that are assigned to us. All right. Um, let's see. Okay. And they took these and sang and played on the psaltery and praised and glorified Elohim in the holy dialect. And after this, he came, he who sitteth upon the great chariot and kissed Job while his three daughters looked on. Um I don't know if this is, I think maybe this is the king of heaven. So this would be maybe Messiah. Um, not really sure here. Well, let's read on and see what it says. And his three daughters looked on, but the others saw it not. And he took the soul of Job and he soared upward, taking her, the soul, by the arm and carrying her upon the chariot. And he went towards the east. Uh, it's interesting that it, it stresses her there. Uh, and I think that that's part of the, maybe the translation, because uh, we know that in, in, uh, Hebrew, um, the soul is feminine, and I think in Greek it's um, it's neutered, and I think in Latin it's masculine. And um, so, it, kind of interesting how it just stresses her there. So I'd have to look at where this is coming from in language use. Um, all right, his body, however, was brought to the grave while the three daughters marched ahead, having put on their girdles and singing hymns in praise of Elohim. Then held Nahor, Neros, his brother, and his seven sons, with the rest of the people and the poor, the orphans and the feeble ones, a great mourning over him, saying, Woe unto us, for today he has been taken from us, the strength of the feeble, the light of the blind, and the father of the orphans. The receiver of strangers had been taken off the leader of the erring, the cover of the naked, the shield of the widows, who would not mourn for the man of Elohim. And as they were mourning in this and in, the form, and in that form, they would not suffer him to be put into the grave. After three days, however, he was finally put into the grave like one in sweet slumber, and he received the name of the good, beautiful, who will remain renowned throughout all generations of the world. He left seven sons and three daughters, and there were no daughters found on earth as fair as the daughters of Job. The name of Job was formerly Jobab, and he was called Job by Yahuwah. He had lived before his plague 85 years, and after the plague, he took the double share of all. Hence also his years he doubled, which is 170 years. Thus he lived altogether 255 years. And as I pointed out before, it actually, you know, the, the, the Israelites were not in Egypt for 400 years. That, uh, and I have, a, I'll, I'll go through that in an upcoming um, talk some night, but the 400 years refers to the covenant the Yahuwah made with Abraham when he divided the, the beast in half. Uh, and leading up to the Exodus. So there were 400, but they were only in Egypt for 200 years. And you could see here that he could actually be alive before the patriarchs ever went into Egypt, and he could have been there long enough to see them leave. And uh, and one more note, well, I'll just finish this last sentence. And he saw sons of his sons into the fourth generation. It is written that he will rise up with those whom Yahuwah will reawaken. Uh, to our Adonai be, uh, be glory. Amen. Uh, it, one last note here, it's really interesting that he says that um, that his daughters, that there were no daughters found on earth as fair as the daughters of Job. Well, who was the mother of the daughters? It was Dinah. Well, Dinah, Dinah had another daughter. If you recall, she was raped by a Canaanite. 
we find out that through multiple books that her that the child of that rape was a girl and um and her name was Athenith. Well, Athenith married Joseph. Joseph's wife is the daughter of his sister. And Athenith, it says that there was nobody as beautiful in all the land as Athenith. So you get the theme with Diana the Daughters that they're all drop-dead gorgeous and nobody compares with them on the earth. So, you know, I mean, I'm saying this respectfully, you know, Dinah must have been, you know, a looker. I mean, she must have been a beautiful woman just to bring out these beautiful daughters. But anyway, that concludes the uh, the Testament of Job. Um, and thank you, everyone, for sticking in. It's been almost two hours. This was a long one. So um, I do want to respect everyone's time. Does anyone have any thoughts on what we read? Any questions? Great stuff. <laughs> yeah, I hope that I hope that uh, just as a community here at, uh, in cosmology in our Discord page, I hope that my goal is in reading these live together that we can all be kind of blessed and we can all grow in knowledge together and just have that have that bond. Um, and I hope these bring you guys joy the way they, they bring me. Like I, I get so excited when I hear there's um, another book of the Bible or scripture or extra biblical literature, whatever you want to call it, that I've never read. And I just I just rushed over there. I just ordered three new books today uh, from Zen that are just volumes of books that are, you know, New Testament texts. And I'll have to give them a try, but I can't wait to read them. So um, this is one of those that I read about a month ago. and I just Really excited. Rob and I have been talking about him. So, um, anybody at all? Any questions, thoughts? It could be about anything. We got a few more minutes. All right. Well, um, then that will be it for the tonight. Uh, we'll just end it here. So, uh, shalom, everybody. And next week we will do we'll do this again with another book. I have a couple ideas and what I want to do, but, um, they're, check, I think you guys are going to really, I, I think you guys going to really like them. They're going to be really good. They'll be really special. I'll announce them later. And, uh, thank you everybody. Um, I'm not go sure ahead, Josh. Guys, oh yeah. I'm not sure if you guys can hear. Oh, you, okay. You can't hear me. Um, I was just, um, <clears throat> I, I was trying to, <laughs> trying to turn my, my headset. I, I record and I listen to on a speaker and my, and my headset sits to the side, but the, it turns off after an activity. So I was <laughs> frantically trying to turn it back on when you uh, said, hey, if anybody has anything. Um, because I was I was thinking of the the first sons because they, they were they were pretty haughty, like they were pretty prideful. And it, it almost to me doesn't make sense that they were taken up to taken up to heaven to be with the maker. And and when I um, have to, I'd have to look at it again. But when he mentions that, he says my foreshadowed sons, or something like it was some some term that uh, didn't. I don't think it meant that his it was his actual sons. It was like some future sons, maybe or something like this. But then when they couldn't find the bones, it seems like that's the case. It's just kind of weird that you know they were all like, oh, why should we have to feed the poor? And then yeah, who was like. Come on up, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, Rob, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. That's one of the things that 
I think I had mentioned was I find I found a little confusing as well. And I, I probably need to kind of look over that again and see what's really going on there. Yeah, that's in chapter four, uh, verse four. And my, my thought on that is that we know that Job was doing uh, sacrifice daily for his children. So perhaps his uh, his sacrifice and what Job did covered them, just as we saw he covered his uh, three friends uh, if by doing the sacrifice to Yah. So I, I, that's the way I would see it, even though their sons may have been haughty, as it says here. Uh, he was doing the sacrifices covering them the whole time. So uh, well, that was all done by Job. Well, it just, it just occurred to me that uh, when you said that, that... It's the idea of being saved in a household, right? Like if they they're still under their father, he was the covering, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's it's almost like the idea that if you one of the the things I've been looking into is when they were when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and they're they're following the the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the the cloud. Um, in the Targum, it it's actually states that not everybody saw the cloud, which I think is really interesting. Uh, it said specifically the tribe of Dan, but it's one of those things where if if you know we all hope if there is another Exodus that we're all going to see the cloud, right? Well, what if you don't? What if you actually have to go by faith and that you're actually you know you like maybe like the patriarch of the the family, like maybe the guy sees it. And his wife and his children are like, I don't see that, but I'm going to follow you anyways. And they're actually saved uh, by right by by the, the leader of the household. And so that that could be something we're seeing here. I could totally see that. That's a good point. It's All right. Well, interesting. And, and, and the whole thing is is crazy in my mind, just how devious the whole thing is, right? Like. Literally, he has everything. He he's doing everything like better than anybody, <laughs> essentially. And then all of a sudden, like even his friends who are like, "Oh yeah, this guy, this is one of the best guys we've ever known." They come there and then <laughs> they start getting on his case. Like they can't even support him. Like it doesn't even matter that he had established this rapport or this like this good character that everybody knew they were just like yeah you must have done something really bad like and and that must like I, I i guess in a way even right now um it's something of a feeling where it's kind of the same thing it's like if you if you like follow yah and you know and you speak truthfully and plainly and then you go up to someone who you don't know or someone who's who's known you for many many years, and you say, "Hey, you know what? This jab or this, you know, this COVID or whatever it is, it's it's a weapon. Like it's a weapon of 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 the enemy. It's it's here to do damage, right?" And they're they're like, "No, you're crazy. They dismiss you. You may have been friends with them for years. I've actually lost friends that I've known for many years. Sometimes up to I think a, around a decade, um, just recently because of COVID. And you know that." there's something super divisive when the, that kind of like historic kind of uh, event happens for sure. There's, there's something very powerful happening and you could t like, you think one of his friends would be able to tell, they'd be able to see, Hey, you know, 
what this guy says is the truth and and why would he have changed so much like why would he be so crazy now and wasn't crazy before and it's just yeah, it's 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 interesting for sure yeah notice only only job knew and only job could see and and the rest could not yeah yeah uh thanks Noel. it was a great read uh very very interesting hey one thing i want to end with uh is chapter four verse seven the seducer could not bear to see the good i did and he demanded the warfare of god against me mm. powerful yep so just remember that when um when the when the spiritual attacks come it's uh, because, you know, very likely that Satan cannot, you know, stand to see the good that is happening. So just remember that and remember good old Job to, uh, you know, not to, uh, to you know, give your praise. You know, the, the greatest tool you can use to fight Satan is to praise the most high um, in these situations. So and this is a, All right. this is a lesson, too, um, from the very beginning. It's very interesting because it's not like Job went out there and cast down the, um, like the edifice that was there to represent Hasatan, and nothing happened. Like Yahuwah was like, "You go and do this, man. Like you're literally asking for all the trouble that you can get." And I think so many, especially it's prevalent in the Christian culture that. Oh yeah, you can just like you can just get rid of the idols and it's all good. Like you're still going to be able to like you know be prosperous and you know all your friends are still going to stay your friends and you know you're still going to be a person of rapport. And I'm just not sure that that is necessarily the case um, because it seems like I, I I wouldn't imagine that this is a singular event that when you start casting down the idols and you start removing um, the transgression from your from your life, that's going to cause war. You're announcing war on on Hasatan, and he's going to respond, right? Or his forces are going to respond. So it's uh, it's certainly certainly interesting that that element in my mind. All right, guys, that's good. All right, guys, it's um about almost eleven o'clock, so we're going to end it here. And once again, thank you everyone for sticking in here this long and listening to this and we will do this again 9 p.m next thursday with a new uh extra biblical book so i'll see you all then and of course um all throughout the week on this discord chat all right thanks guys shalom shalom thanks no shalom all mm -hmm.